We're reading today an entire chapter. That would be chapter 23 of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 23, starting in verse 1 and to the rest of the chapter. When David was told, Look, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are looting the threshing floors. He inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? The Lord answered him, Go, attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Here in Judah we are afraid. How much more than if we go to Keilah against the Philistine forces? Once again David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered him, Go down to Keilah, for I am going to give you the Philistines into your hand. So David and his men went to Keilah, fought the Philistines, and carried off their livestock. He inflicted heavy losses on the Philistines and saved the people of Keilah. Now Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had brought the ephod down with him when he fled to David at Keilah. Saul was told that David had, that David had gone to Keilah, and he said, God has handed him over to me. For David has imprisoned himself by entering a town with gates and bars. And Saul called up all his forces for battle to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. When David learned that Saul was plotting against him, he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod. David said, O Lord, God of Israel, your servant has heard definitely that Saul plans to come to Keilah and destroy the town on account of me. Will the citizens of Selah surrender me to him? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, God of Israel, tell your servant. And the Lord answered, He will. Again David asked, Will the citizens of Keilah surrender me and my men to Saul? And the Lord answered and said, They will. So David and his men, about 600 in number, left Keilah and kept moving from place to place. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he did not go there. David stayed in the desert strongholds and in the hills of the desert of Ziph. Day after day, Saul searched for him, but God did not give David into his hands. When, while David was at Horish in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. And Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Horish and helped him to find strength in the Lord. Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king of Israel and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. The two of them made a covenant before the Lord. Then Jonathan went home. But David remained at Horish. The Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah and said, Hmm, is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horish, on the hill at Hakilah, south of Jeshimon? Now, O king, come down whenever it pleases you to do so, and we will be responsible for handing him over to the king. Saul replied, The Lord bless you for your concern for me. Go and make further preparation. Find out where David usually goes and who has seen him there. They tell me he is very crafty. Find out about all the hiding places that he uses and come back to me with definite information. Then I will go down with you if he is in the area. 
I will track him down among all the clans of Judah. So they set out and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the desert of Maon, in the Arabah south of Jeshimon. Saul and his men began the search, and when David was told about it, he went down to the rock and stayed in the desert of Maon. When Saul heard about this, he went into the desert of Maon in pursuit of David. Saul was going along one side of the mountain, and David and his men were on the other side, hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his forces were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul saying, Come quickly, the Philistines are raiding the land. Then Saul broke off his pursuit of David and went to meet the Philistines. That is why they call this place Selah Hamalekoth. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of Engedi. Well, we had 1 Samuel chapter 23 read for us, and I did that because I want to cover both chapters 23 and 24 today. I probably could have preached on both of them separately, but I also want to finish our series, in, or at least this part of our series in 1 Samuel, before Advent. Plus, there's a special speaker next Sunday, and I asked if if he could preach on 1 Samuel 25, so I locked myself into covering lots of ground. To get us thinking about today's text, it seems like the good guys are always losing until the end, right? I mean, that's the plot of most movies. Most movies, most stories do not have this plot. The people you really like and you really want to win are in total entire control. And, uh uh-oh, there's a tiny pesky little problem. Oh, good, the powerful good guys put the fire out the end. It would be kind of a boring movie if you watch that, but rather, it seems like the problematic, evil, bad people are in total, entire control, and the good guys always seem to be oppressed or suffering and trying like crazy to make ground, but it's always in inches, and for the most part, it seems hopeless until something miraculous happened or until all the dominoes start falling, and those those are the stories we like because it has that tension, and we're emotionally invested in seeing the underdog good guys win. It's why in history we don't seem to study long periods of peace and prosperity. (laughs) Rather, we're told of the fall of grand, powerful, corrupt empires, or the wars that freed oppressed people from the Nazis or the communists or other tyrants. And in our reading, we, we had the man who should be King David running from the man who shouldn't be king but is Saul. And in the last part, Saul was about to close in on David until the the Philistines attacked Saul's homeland, and thus he had to back off. We'll pick up the story in 1 Samuel chapter 24, and I do invite you to stand if you're able as we read it together. And we'll read all of chapter 24, so we have both of those chapters in mind. We read, when Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the wilderness near En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 of Israel's fit young men and went to look for David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. When Saul came to the sheep pens along the road, a cave was there and he went in to relieve himself. David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. 
So they said to him, look, this is the day the Lord told you about. I will hand your enemy over to you so you can do to him whatever you desire. Then David got up and secretly cut off the corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, as the Lord is my witness, I would never do such a thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed. I will never lift my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. With these words, David persuaded his men, and he did not let them rise up against Saul. Then Saul left the cave and went on his way. After that, David got up, went out of the cave, and called to Saul, My lord the king! When Saul looked behind him, David knelt low with his face to the ground and paid homage. David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of people who say, Look, David intends to harm you. You can see with your own eyes that the Lord handed you over to me today in the cave. Someone advised me to kill you, but I took pity on you and said, I won't lift my hand against my Lord since he is the Lord's anointed. Look, my father, look at the corner of your robe in my hand, for I cut it off, but I didn't kill you. Recognize that I've committed no crime or rebellion. I haven't sinned against you, even though you're hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between me and you, and may the Lord take vengeance on you for me. But my hand will never be against you. As the old proverb says, wickedness comes from wicked people. My hand will never be against you. Who has the king of Israel come after? What are you chasing after, a dead dog? A single flea? May the Lord be judge and decide between you and me. May he take notice and plead my case and deliver me from you. When David finished saying these things to him, Saul replied, is that your voice? (laughs) Sorry, that just seems extremely funny. (laughs) David, my son. Then Saul wept aloud and said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have done what is good to me, though I have done what is evil to you. You yourself have told me today what good you did for me. When the Lord handed me over to you, you didn't kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him go unharmed? May the Lord repay you with a with good for what you've done for me today. Now I know for certain you will be king, and the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. Therefore, swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David swore to Saul. Then Saul went back home, and David and his men went up to the stronghold. Let's pray. Father, sometimes we look at these old stories and it just seems like we're reading itineraries and events and they're rushing here and rushing there and there's people we don't know about. But you did write these words down for your people for all generations. So we invite you to use these words to speak to our hearts today. Help us to grow more in our knowledge of you as well as in our faith and affections for you and your kingdom In your reign, help us to trust you when the circumstances want to cause us to doubt. Whatever it is, we pray that you would be the one speaking and not myself. Please have your way in our hearts. Thank you, Lord Jesus, again for your death and resurrection. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. may be seated. We are in the the quintessential story in my mind of David's kingdom. When I, when I think of David's kingdom, I largely think of he running from Saul. When it comes to his actual being king, sadly the first and the biggest 
thing that jumps out at me is his sin with Bathsheba. I should probably think about the covenant God makes with him, but I probably heard more sermons about David and Bathsheba's story uh, preached on more often. But the first thing I really think of is when I hear King David, period, is David running from Saul. And as he is on the run, perhaps we should ask, who really is the king of Israel? Uh, The author in chapter 23, which Jim read for us, wants us to get an idea about something. We heard the Philistines are fighting against Keilah. So we have some oppressors in Israel. And then we heard the Lord say to David, launch an attack against the Philistines and rescue Keilah. And this word rescue is a key word. It's save or it's also deliver in some translations. And what this is, is the formula for the book of Judges. And I've said this in here before, and I'm stating it again. I submit a title change to the book of the Bible. I believe it should be called the book of deliverers. Because whenever I hear judge, I just think of cloak, gavel, and dealing out the law. And that's not the judges the Bible is talking about. But these are people who save or rescue or deliver Israel. And the formula is here. Israel is oppressed, an enemy is bothering them, and the Lord shows up to and in David to deliver them. And in fact, when the Lord did anoint Saul, which I think a lot of us forget that, that Saul did was anointed by God supernaturally. Saul was appointed to the kingdom. Saul was also filled by the Spirit of God to deliver enemies from Israel. We see that in 1 Samuel 11. And in Samuel the prophet's farewell speech, we hear him name a bunch of the judges or the deliverers, and he adds, He rescued you from the power of the enemies around you, he being God, and you live securely. But when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was coming against you, you said to me, No, we must have a king to reign over us, even though the Lord your God is your king. Now, here is the king you've chosen, the one you requested. Look, this is the king the Lord has placed over you. So Samuel had put the king in the same category as the judges or the deliverers. The people wanting a king like everyone else, that was sinful. But God is being gracious and supplying that king. But the prophet of God, Samuel, was saying, if you still count Yahweh as your God, your king will operate in many ways as the deliverers did, a deliverer from your enemies empowered by God. So this is interesting because now when an oppressor came and the deliverer is needed, David is being empowered. Perhaps Saul was too busy burning a city of priests to the ground. We saw that wonderful episode last week in chapter 22. And whether Saul knows or hears about Keilah suffering at the hands of the Philistines or not, Saul is too busy, too consumed with hunting down David to be bothered with defending Israel from real enemies. See, Saul needs to attack his personal enemy. That's more important. And we hear another statement straight out of the book of Judges, or I should say contrary to what we usually hear in Judges. When King Saul fails hunting down King David, verse 14, Saul searched for him every day, but God did not hand David over to him. Usually we hear, but God delivered 
the enemies over to the hand of some judge. Furthermore, it seems that the same enemies who attacked Keilah are now attacking more of Israel by God's providence. We see that at the end of the chapter. Because Saul literally had David almost encircled around that hill when a messenger showed up to let Saul know that the Philistines are raiding the land. Poor Saul had to call off his selfish manhunt to take care of the actual enemies of Israel. And so this gave David time to retreat to En Gedi, which is literally this oasis, this paradise of a waterfall, pond, green, lush patch of land, literally in the middle of miles and miles and miles of desert wasteland. So we back out and we have this. We, we, we see this. Enemies raiding different parts of Israel. And while the king is ignoring it, David at least protects one city, Keilah, from them. Of course, they repay him by being willing to turn him over to Saul, or at least so God revealed to David this is what would happen. But if Saul can burn down cities of priests, I say, who can blame Keilah? Oh, of course we're going to let Saul know if David was here. And the king of Israel, he's hell-bent on one thing, murdering the protector of Israel, David. Because besides Keilah, David has constantly come to the rescue of Israel over and over, even when Saul wasn't hunting him down. Hunting him down. And it could cause one to ask, who is the king? Have you ever been there? I mean, let's not go on a long tangent and get super political, but I've been there. Who's running this ship? <laughs> because the guy who says he's running this ship doesn't seem to have all the chocolate chips required in his cookie. Or it could be the times when maybe we have our personal desired Davids in the proverbial throne. Somehow somebody is making sure he's being hunted down and lacking power. And in those moments when David is on the run and Saul's on the hunt, we should remind ourselves that we have a king of kings. The psalmist writes for us, Do not trust in nobles and a son of man who cannot save. When his breath leaves him, he returns to the ground. On that day his plans die. Happy is the one whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever, executing justice for the exploited and giving food to the hungry. The Lord frees prisoners. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises up those who are oppressed. The Lord loves the righteous. So what we see here is that the Lord commanded David to deliver Keilah from the Philistines. And the Lord was not handing David over to Saul, so it was the Lord at work all along. <laughs> it's not that uh, David was the right man or Saul was the wrong man, but it was the Lord who is king of kings. But we don't always remember that, do we? We don't always see that. See, after the Philistine threat is put down by Saul, we see Saul return back to the hunt, finds out that David is at En Gedi, Saul heads there, and we read, when Saul came to the sheep pens along the road, a cave was there, and he went in to relieve himself. David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave, so they said to him, Look, this is the day the Lord told you about. I will hand your enemy over to you, so you can do to him whatever you desire. Then David got up and secretly cut off the, cut off the corner of Saul's robe. 
Now, you may recall that David's going to use this occasion later to say, I could have killed you. Now, is that the only reason that David's just aiming for the robe here? Because if so, it would seem odd that we read, afterward, David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe. Notice, he's not bothered, oh, I attempted to kill him. But he's bothered by the very act of cutting off the corner of Saul's robe. This is because David's not just cutting off the robe to have evidence later on of how close he was to Saul. Rather, the robe is basically what we understand to be our idea of the crown. Imagine if someone was able to take a monarch's crown, cut off a section of it when they weren't looking. Guess you need a blowtorch. Joe, you probably have that in your arsenal. Okay. <laughs> but cut off of a section of it and, and then place it back. The robe is significant in this day because, and in this culture. Priests were known by their robes. Samuel received a robe as a child and was known by his robe. So the king likely had a particular robe. And so symbolically, just how in, in some high churches where the pastor wears the white collar and someone rips out the white collar and throws it on the ground and says, you've been defrocked. So David apparently felt guilty and that he was meaning much more than just see how close I was that I cut your robe. He was echoing in some ways what Samuel had said when Saul grabbed a hold of Samuel's robe to tear it. And Samuel said that then that Saul's kingdom has been torn from him. David is likely wishing that Saul would just give it up. I'm so glad I got all the names straight there. I was concentrating really hard. <laughs> David knows that he's anointed king, but here is Saul holding on, and he felt guilty after he cut the robe. David said to his men, As the Lord is my witness, I would never do such a thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed. I will never lift my hand against him, since he is the Lord's anointed. With these words, David persuaded his men, and he did not let them rise up against Saul. You, you hear this? I mean, let's put this into perspective, what David is saying. He's saying that Saul, the man who is hunting David down to destroy him, the man who burnt up a city of priests of Yahweh, a man who was likely going to let the city of Keilah go to the Philistines if it weren't for David. David says, this man is the Lord's anointed. I didn't go back to cite the source, but I do remember one of my commentaries or study notes a while back as I was preparing for one of my sermons and Samuel said, they said, David let two moments slip by where God provided a chance for David to overpower Saul. That is, I got the impression that the commentary was suggesting that David should have taken this opportunity, or the next one, spoiler alert, that comes his way. And I don't know, I'm a little bit shocked by David's continued insistence that Saul is the Lord's anointed here, but I do applaud David for not taking Saul's life. And we'll see David give his reasoning for that in a bit. But I imagine not everyone in David's army was in agreement about this. And not for reasons of simply power hunger, like I want David to be in charge, but rather injustice. The Lord's anointed David. Do you know what happened with Abiathar's family, right? Any of you been there before? I know a few people who, who 
weren't uh, content with the outcome and could easily question if it was the Lord's will or not in 2020 about the election. And, and we might say, well, Kevin, we don't live in a society where we believe God has anointed each president. But we do live in a world where we read in Proverbs that the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And a world where Jesus encourages obedience to the law of the land unless it conflicts directly with discipleship to him. David, the anointed secret king, has said, while Saul was literally in striking distance. I mean, all David had to do was raise the dagger or sword a bit higher into the back. And like that, the reign of terror could have ended and David's reign could have begun. But David has said, he is the Lord's anointed. I'm not going to take him before his time. I mean, honestly, there are still, I think there are two types of people. Those who say, oh, God doesn't mind if you get your hands dirty. A little bit of pragmatism. Come on, David, you you took down Goliath, take down Saul. And still others who say, I get David. I get where he's coming from. He's been promised the kingdom. God will provide it for him and he'll do it without David needing to do what actually many other kingdoms do. And that is the new king is just the one who successfully assassinates the present king and has enough followers to let him take the throne. And David's not like that. David's not like that because he trusts that even though he doesn't have a kingdom now, he trusts that King Saul's days are numbered. And after David quietly cut off the robe of Saul, we read, Then Saul left the cave and went on his way. After that, David got up, went out of the cave, and called to Saul, My lord the king! When Saul looked behind him, David knelt low with his face to the ground and paid homage. Which that takes a lot right there, in my mind. I think our culture has changed quite a bit. There have been some presidents in our time where anything but respect is what they're going to get when they go to some places. But David is serious about this because he trusts God, he trusts God's time, Not because he's infatuated with Saul in any way. David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of people who say, Look, David intends to harm you. You can see with your own eyes that the Lord handed you over to me today in the cave. So perhaps there is the source of the commentators who say that David is actually neglecting or he's not utilizing the chances that God is giving to David. David says right here, the Lord handed you over to me today in the cave. Right? I had the chance. You were right in front of me. But then David moves from God providing the opportunity to this truth, someone advised me to kill you. Right? That wasn't God. That was someone advising David. This is the opportunity God has given you. But I took pity on you and said, I won't lift my hand against the Lord since He is the Lord's anointed. I just want to stop right here and say, what if the opportunities that you and I might think that come to us for our advantage might actually be opportunities to be for others' advantages due to our being gracious. See, David is setting an example here. He's setting an example that Saul's going to respond to, and we'll talk about that when we get there. But so many of us, let's be honest, a lot of money, I can buy all the things I've wanted. 
Or what about the necessities that others have needed? Right? Oh, the spouse is out of the house. Finally, some time to indulge into some of my guilty pleasures. Or how about visiting a few neighbors that are shut-ins, right? Opportunities, choices. David was in the presence of what we know to be a tyrant, a selfish, murderous leader, a killer, a hostile enemy to the priests of God. I mean, this just doesn't get to David in a self-serving sense. Oh, I'll get to be king if I kill him. But it can get to David in a wanting justice sense. You think David was incensed that Saul is killing people to get to him? And let's be honest, our mindset is often eye for eye, tooth for tooth, limb for limb, life for life. Our mindset is a little evil for the greater good is okay. Would it be evil to kill Saul? Apparently David thinks so. Look at what he says in verse 11. Look, my father, look at the corner of your robe in my hand, for I cut it off, but I didn't kill you. Recognize that I've committed no crime or rebellion. I haven't sinned against you, even though you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between me and you, and may the Lord take vengeance on you for me, but my hand will never be against you. As the old proverb says, wickedness comes from wicked people. My hand will never be against you. Wickedness comes from wicked people. You hear that? I wonder if some of us think wickedness comes from, eh, you know, mostly good people too. That can happen. Jesus, the greater King David, said something similar. Every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit. Neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Some of you didn't know Jesus was a gardener, but I don't know, but I don't, I just don't think Jesus is, is pragmatic. And here's what I hear a lot. I hear this. People pray for God to do something when really God's waiting for them to act. Right? I hear that. Sometimes it seems like I'm just waiting on the Lord and you want to tell the person, I think the Lord's waiting on you at this point. David's been given one opportunity here and will be given one later, but he's saying, May the Lord take vengeance on you for me, but my hand will never be against you. And I wonder if, again, some people are like, David, you're entitled, buddy. (laughs) But David sees something wrong with this. It's not that he's a pacifist to the extreme. He's taken down many people in war. Many people forgot that after he slugged Goliath down, then he beheaded him. He collected 200 foreskins once for the bride price of his bride, and I'm assuming all those guys are dead now. And were these people all deserving of their deaths? But when it comes to King Saul, guilty, selfish, murderous King Saul, David says, this man was anointed by God to be leader, and until God removes him for me, I'm not going to be that person. So the question is, is can you really trust God, or sometimes do you like to play theologian. I know it says wait on the Lord, but maybe the Lord's waiting on me, and I'm going to go ahead and pull the proverbial trigger, right? I'm going to take out a loan because the Lord really wants me to have it, or I'm going to sever this relationship because it's just too toxic, or is it too sanctifying and you're giving up? David is not giving up. He's not too pansy to kill Saul. 
and he's still offended and upset with Saul. We Again, we do read, who has the king of Israel come after? What are you chasing after? A dead dog? A single flea? May the Lord be judge and decide between you and me. May he take notice and plead my case and deliver me from you. Now, I hope this doesn't make any of you leave the faith, but Israelites did not believe that dogs were man's best friend. (laughs) They thought very little of dogs. And in fact, in the New Testament, we hear that for the unbeliever, they're the dogs outside the kingdom. So in the Jewish mind, dogs are symbolic, maybe of sometimes of enemies, but most of the time they were just symbolic of something worthless. Humble, lowly, part of the furniture or less. And so David echoing Saul's own son Jonathan and echoing the priest that Saul slaughtered, which we talked about last week. David is just asking Saul, what kind of threat am I to you? Am I a ferocious dead, am I as ferocious as a dead dog or a, a mere flea? And if you don't get the picture, I hate to be morbid, but the next time you're around a dead dog, see how threatened you feel. But this is what David is saying. I am no threat And for the way you've treated me, and really for the way Saul's treated Israel, the Lord will take vengeance. That's not being a doormat. That's not David being a coward or misplaced when it comes to what justice looks like. That's actually Old and New Testament right there. Paul says in Romans 12.19, Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath because it is written, Vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. Deuteronomy 32-35 is likely what Paul is quoting. I don't know. I could be, be wrong, but I just feel like a lot of Christians, sometimes they get this chip on their shoulder and they say, well, Christians have been doormats for far too long. We should fight more often, be more brazen, get in people's faces. And I don't know. I just don't see David and Jesus operating this way. Well, Jesus got a whip and turned over temple tables. Okay, well, let's get an angry guy in the church with a bunch of people who profess to be believers and are hypocrites because that's where Jesus was doing it. But what did Jesus do when he was being crucified? What did Jesus do when he was, what did David do when he was next to Saul in distance to kill him? Did Jesus overthrow the domineering Romans? Yes, with love and with service and with peace. Do Not avenge yourselves, says Moses, says Paul. David understood that. David's plea of letting God avenge any injustice is not cowardly of David, it's commanded. And though we know Saul is going to, spoiler alert, once again renege on his word, he says for now, as we close out the chapter, when David finished saying these things to him, Saul replied, is that your voice? David, my son, then Saul wept aloud. I'd like to pause on these moments of Saul because I have a tendency to read through them quickly. I just let the reality of who Saul is and ultimately who he will die as overshadow these moments or minimize these moments. But as I saturate on things like this, it makes me realize how real Saul is and quite horrifically how sometimes I can relate to him. Saul wept aloud, verse 17, and said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have done what is good to me, though I have done what is evil to you. You yourself have told me today what good you did for me when the Lord handed me over to you. You didn't kill me. 
When a man finds his enemy, does he let him go unharmed? May the Lord repay you with good for what you've done for me today. Now I know for certain you will be king, and the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. Therefore, swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David swore to Saul. Then Saul went back home, and David and his men went up to the stronghold. You know, I really don't think Saul is playing poker here. I don't think he's bluffing. I think he's wishy-washy, which means he's probably very serious right now. He's probably very adamant right now. He likely believes everything he's saying, including the part about, I know for certain you will be king and the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. As in, it sounds like he's saying, and I'm going to do nothing to stop that. Hence, his going back home. We're going to get a break between Saul chasing David next week in chapter 25, and then Saul will be back at it again in chapter 26. But Saul's done this before. He's finally got it before. You know, Jonathan, his son, had talked some sense into him one time before, so much so that David was able to come back into Saul's presence, and then eventually again something snapped, and Saul tried to spear David again. Here's what I think. Saul knows the truth. He knows that God has removed the throne from him. He knows that David is the king. He said it right here, and Saul knows. He flat out knows he shouldn't be doing what he's doing. Saul just has what all people have, and that that is there is an unrighteousness of people who by their own unrighteousness suppress the truth, since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. God has shown Saul a few decisive, immovable truths that Saul is rebelling against. And he has moments of clarity. They're just without repentance. Moments of understanding and maybe even surrender to what's true, but it's not total surrender. I wonder where you are. I wonder if... You've surrendered, or if like Saul here, you just have moments of clarity, moments of, oh, oh, okay, God's really going to win. He's really going to have His way. and Maybe I should just yield to the, yeah, I think I'll just lay my weapons down. And But the fact of the matter is, is you intend to pick them back up again. So there are many things we can learn from this chapter, but most of all we should learn this, that we have a king of kings. We have a king over all the kings of the world, and he's the one who is really in charge. He's the one who will take vengeance for those who continue to persist in injustice. He's the one who we can trust in when we are either powerless or we should choose peace and restraint in the face of those who are evil, since God will take vengeance. And he's the one to whom we should yield to. Not the, not like Saul and say, oh, you gotta point God and then we just take a breather from our sinning. But we really repent. We really yield to. We really say, change me. Really change me, God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, uh, sometimes I don't like studying the life of David and Saul because I realize how much like Saul I am. 
But the good thing about David is David reminds us so much of like your son Jesus, the greater King David. Father, to, to, to literally have a king like Saul right in front of us and we can take the shot, but to choose what we think to be right, even though it seems so wrong, to let somebody like Saul go on living. Father, help us to be that yielded to you, to know the power that we really have to change the course of events, but to yield to what we know is right. Holy Spirit, help us to be that in tune with your Spirit, to not have moral dilemmas, knowing what's right and what's wrong, but to be always be listening to your voice and to know without a shadow of a doubt, this is what the Lord would have me do here. And Father, if we are like Saul, if we just have moments of clarity after vicious months of sin, help us to truly repent. You've given us the power to do so by the Holy Spirit. Help us to truly repent, to change our lives, to start heading in the right direction. And help us to do whatever we need to do to do that. But thank you for the fact that you've given us everything we need. You've given us the power in your Holy Spirit. You've given us the community, community of Christ to rely on. So, Lord, we thank you for that. We ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.